So, welcome back to Stats for Lefties, a podcast providing a left-wing take on polls and election stats. I'm your host, L. And I'm your host, Paige. We've made it through a very, very surprised, very late, belated winter, and we are now out the other side, as you can tell by the very small, sad remnant of a snowman in our back garden. Uh, I would like to apologise for my absence from the podcasting scene for a while. The This winter has been particularly difficult because I was one of the many people who was not able to leave uh, and go home to see my parents over Christmas because of the uh, Christmas restrictions. So We have returned despite a Christmas that I think Oliver Twist would uh, relate to. A, lot, a few things have happened over that uh, Christmas winter period. Um, obviously, Biden's fully become president. Uh, Trump was impeached and then acquitted, uh, although seven Republicans did vote to convict him, uh, including a few that I didn't expect. Everybody's just talking about the Trump situation and the Biden situation, but I feel like Biden came into power and then I've not really heard much. No, it's been quite quiet in terms of American news but it does mean that the focus of us can shift a little bit back to uh, British politics yeah um, which after an extended period in which the polls were effectively uh, deadlocked in terms of approval best PM voting intention they finally started to shift and it's not altogether positive news for Labour um, and I think that uh, we'll talk about that today. Winter's almost over, but we've got to make spring happen. Sorry. It's okay. I've been drinking too much Coca-Cola. It's my one treat. I go to the supermarket, I buy what I need to eat, and then I get one treat, which is a bottle of Coca-Cola. And not a big bottle of Coca-Cola, a single-person bottle. And Paige always thinks it's very wholesome for some reason. Don't... We can't talk about supermarkets again. This is not a supermarket podcast, though I understand if anyone ever gets confused. (laughs) It's <laughs> a supermarket podcast where we occasionally talk about politics. Supermarkets for lefties. So because the polls changed so much in the middle of recording these podcasts, I always like to do the um, the previous month's polls. But I, I think we will touch on the ones this month because they're beginning to change quite rapidly. But January's polls, uh, again, another neck and neck between the Tories and Labour. Tories on 40%, Labour on 39 everyone else way behind which would lead to a hung parliament uh, in which Labour would be able to form a minority government. Boris Johnson's approval rating is minus 11, and Starmer's approval rating was plus 6, which was uh, quite a decline from what it was mid-last year when it was uh, plus 19. In best prime minister polling, uh, Boris Johnson was two points ahead of Keir Starmer. So people narrowly, on average, still prefer Boris Johnson as prime minister to Keir Starmer, which for all my disagreements with Keir Starmer, I still don't really understand (laughs) why anyone would think that. Uh, so yeah, so even just looking at those January figures, uh, the Tories are still ahead, uh, Boris Johnson is still ahead. Why do we think that is? The media machine. The media, yeah, I mean, there hasn't really been any kind of discussion of all the things the government's gotten wrong. That said, Starmer's not raised them as much as he could himself, mm. I think because he's trying to appeal to people who want him to rally around the government, but I don't think that that's exactly what we need right now. That was what the polls have been saying in January, but in February thus far, they've looked uh, a bit worse for Starmer. Labour's gone from one point behind last month to about four points behind now, which is his worst position since August. Starmer's 
now six points behind the best PM polling, and Starmer's approval rating has gone from the plus 19 it was in June, plus six in January, to plus three now, and his percentage approval is 35%, which is his lowest since last April. Why Do you think this is a result of Starmer disappointing people, or is it that the Tories themselves are impressing people? Because they've had a very good vaccine rollout, and lots of people are saying that's why they're going up and Boris is going up and all that stuff. You're a bit more in tune with normal people than I am. So. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm down with the kids. So I think that the vaccine rollout is part of it because it's, it's, it's at the point where everybody knows someone who's been vaccinated, which obviously is fantastic. But no, it's 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 you can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel in a way you couldn't before. Yeah, it is nice. And I can see why people would be grateful to the government mm. for that, including lots of people who had previously been leaning towards the Labour Party. Did you think it's just the vaccine boost? I think part of it is not people don't want to talk about COVID anymore. So they're like, mm. get the vaccine done. Don't criticise the government. Just get it done. Get it over with. Let's go back to life as normal. Whereas the Labour's in a difficult situation because it's very natural to want to criticise the piss poor handling of COVID. But I think a lot of people just don't want to talk about COVID anymore. I mean, I don't want to talk about COVID. I'd rather talk about supermarkets. So, as, as we've evidenced multiple times. Yeah. But like, I think it's a difficult situation where... You look weak if you're not criticising the government, but the things that you want to criticise the government on right now, nobody wants to listen to you anymore. Well, see, I think part of the problem is that the 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 tack from which Starm has been criticising the government has been on the question of competence. Mm. The government's not managing it well, the implication being we'd manage it better mm. if we had been in the position to do it. But that doesn't really doesn't really work as well when the government's being massively approved by the public and their approval on handling vaccine distributions going up and up and up and up the competence attack doesn't work if people think the government's doing it doing well mm. and so all you're left with is the opposition saying we think the government's not competent and the public saying well we think they are because mm. my nan and my dad just got vaccinated and now they're safe and they're gonna get around to me and then they get around to my friends and we'll be back uh, back as we were and you know i think they've done fine people would say well that's because yeah the UK is a miserably xenophobic little island who doesn't like to pay attention to people beyond its borders who aren't Americans. And so a lot of people are there like, we've done a great job. And it's like, we're one of the worst countries on earth for how we've handled COVID. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Please just open your eyes and see that. It could have been so much better. But see, that's kind of the problem in that criticising the government solely from a competence managerial perspective has completely missed the mark, I think that one of the reasons why the polls are starting to become softer and they're just moving back and forth on the basis of wishy-washy feelings is because Labour hasn't articulated a criticism of the government's approach that's founded in what Labour would do differently. I couldn't tell you anything about what Starmer would have done differently. I also can't tell you very much about Starmer. He's a very boring man. Yeah, we've talked Which, about it being boring before. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because we could have Boris. Yeah. And we do have Boris and he is not boring, but in all the worst ways. But yeah, it's not particularly inspiring. It's, it's kind of frustrating as well because there has been quite a lot of good policy coming out of some areas of the Shadow Cabinet. There's been a commitment from the education side of things to uh, abolish tuition fees. Like that commitment, a lot of people were thinking it would go. Yeah been kept and that's a very good sign uh, there's been a lot of good policy on supporting disabled people on supporting people on benefits coming out of the dwp side of the shadow cabinet and th th like there's a lot of good policy coming out but it's not really being talked about or being 
advocated for by the the leadership who has the biggest name recognition of everyone. And I think it should be because I think that Labour's strength lies in the fact that we actually have a vision for how we could rebuild the country after COVID. We're not really talking about that right now. We're just talking about how the government's mismanaged X, been incompetent at Y, failed to do uh, this thing after the event. And, you know, a lot of people will respond to that by saying, why should we listen to people like you, like you, you, people with your politics, lost the last election, we should ignore you completely. But I think that you can still be right about things. Well, I mean, just because you lost the election doesn't mean you don't have worthwhile ideas. Otherwise, that would wipe out a lot of left-wing governments who have brought in very, very good positive things over the years. Mm. I mean, Clement Attlee lost the election in 1951, didn't mean the NHS was bad. Yeah, exactly. Gordon and thank Brown. you for knowing the dates and names. I do That's know the dates That's basically and names. my yeah. point. Yeah. Gordon Brown lost in 2010. It didn't mean that Sure Start, which he helped bring into being, was bad. It didn't mean that the Equality Act, which he passed, was bad. No. And it didn't mean that he didn't have lots to contribute on things like devolution, on things like the economy. I read his book that he published after he left office. It was actually very good. It was really interesting to hear his account of the financial crisis. And as Brown was basically pulling the world economy back together in 2008-2009, his approval rating at home was as low as minus 50. He had up to 70, 75% of the population mm. disapproving of him. But it didn't make him wrong, and it yeah. didn't make him useless. In fact, he did a lot of good that I think people, are, including people on the left, are not generous enough to him about. Yeah. People get scared of doing the right thing because they're afraid it will make them unpopular. When in reality, you should do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. Mm. You shouldn't need a reward. I know that's very naive uh, logic, but it makes me think of New Zealand. Like their strategy on COVID would have caused people to absolutely wet themselves with rage in the UK. But ultimately it worked. And even though it was initially unpopular, they then went on to like win the election mm. and... Like, their country's benefiting so much because they were like, okay, let's do this thing which is going to be initially controversial, but we know we'll pay off. We know it's the right action, so we're going to do it anyway. And as well, this is another jump to a similar thing, but uh, Obama with gay marriage. I know that there are, there are states who are going to hate this, but I'm going to push it through anyway because it's the right thing to do and I can see the way the wind is blowing. Sometimes you have to make unpopular decisions because... People are going to always fight them screaming and kicking until they live in the reality where it's a thing and then they're like, oh, it's actually not that bad. Another example, the NHS. Or even to go back to Obama, uh, the Affordable Care Act. I have a lot of criticism of the Affordable Care Act. It's possible, it's certainly possible to argue that it was the only thing that was passable in yeah. America in, in 2010. I think maybe more would be passable now um, and more will be passable, we'll see in the next two years. But I think in 2010, it's entirely possible, given how many more conservative Democrats there were in the House and the Senate at the time. Just one thing people forget, there are a lot of conservative Democrats. There's not that many now. But in 2008, 2009, 2010, there's a huge faction of conservative Democrats in the House and Senate. Mm -hmm. And getting them on board was as difficult as getting the Republicans on board. But Obama basically spent all of his political capital, massively unpopular, lost the House and nearly lost the Senate in 2010, huge margins, spent all his political capital in order to pass the Affordable Care Act because he knew that Democrats had been trying to pass health care reform since the 1960s and they'd failed every single time. And he was like, if I don't get this done now, we will never get it done. We will never get it done. And I just need to push something through mm. so that we've made some kind of progress that we can build on. 
And that's what he did. And even yeah. that was one of the most controversial things he ever did, if not the most controversial thing. Um, but he still did it. And he still yeah. stood by it. And it's not necessarily got everything I would agree with in it. But it's quite bizarre to me that so many people who would consider themselves centrists lord Obama as being a compromiser. But he pushed through something that was dramatically unpopular. Yeah. Because he thought it was right. And he is right. He was yeah. right. Of course people have a right to health care. And even as problematic and like eh, compromising as the Affordable Care Act is like it, it is like you said it's a foundation on which they can eventually force their floundering country into a situation where people don't die because they need to get surgery like it's absurd to me that that's a situation anyone thinks people anyone thinks that anyone deserves mm. you never like at some point in your life you will be struck down by sickness and i hope to god you live in a place where people who don't know you care enough about their fellow humans to not mind that some of their tax goes to saving your life so that's what we kind of feel about the Tory bounce in the polls then. That it's partly vaccine, partly people not wanting to talk about COVID anymore. But that is also to an extent Starmer's kind of a bit invisible. Yeah, he's just not really done very much. We've been talking about Biden. Mm -hmm. Since we've been off the other Democrats return to power in the United States, they now hold both houses of Congress and the presidency. Senate was unexpected, uh, but it, it they did. And now... The Democrats have 50 seats in the Senate. It doesn't mean all that much. I've written down what does this mean. It's like, well, for the rest of the world, it, you know, it's relatively it's relatively good because it means that if a Supreme Court vacancy comes up, the Democrats will fill it without needing Republican votes. It also means Biden's cabinet will be easily confirmed, so there won't be any trouble in getting through a Secretary of State or any of the other foreign policy people. Uh, and it also means international treaties can be passed through the Senate again because the Senate has the say on them in terms of domestic american policy the senate is effectively split right down the middle which means that the one and two conservative democrats left in the senate effectively have a veto over what goes on which is why the democrats are arguing about these two thousand dollar checks and whether it should be fourteen hundred dollars whether it be means tested and all this stuff because joe manchin as the democratic senator for west virginia is very opposed to the idea of paying people money but the whole american senate system is is ludicrous anyway it That's is true. It is a bit like if London had the same number of MPs as Norfolk. And Wild. London has, what, 10 million people close to at this point? Yeah. Uh, certainly in that in the region of that many voters. And Norfolk has about three people and um, a sheep. But no, yeah. So I don't know what you made of the... Um, the, the the Biden Biden obviously ascended to the presidency. A lot of people didn't believe that he would. Um a lot of Trump supporters didn't believe that he would do it, but he did. Mm. Um, I watched that. I was very emotional. I don't know how you felt about it. I was very happy. Ding dong, the Trump is gone for now. Ooh. But um, yeah, no, very happy that the orange weasel man is gone and that there's some Democrats in charge again. I know that they're kind of boring and they don't tend to do many radical changes, which is a shame. But you know what I mean? Like You can kind of be like... Okay, so the next four years, the world won't implode. Yes, and that is you effectively... Can, you can be calm for a few years. That was effectively the argument for Joe Biden, right? Both by his supporters and both by people on the left who were disappointed but accepted the result of the primary, which is that, like, it is better to be in a situation where you have to lobby a Democrat to do something that they think might cost a bit too much than 
campaign against the disastrous actions taken by a mm. Republican president. Uh, and I know that I say this this often, but I, I think that it that also applies to uh, the left's attitude to Starmer. I, there's, there's too many people that I see nowadays saying that they won't vote for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. And I just think that that is a mistake. Cool. Thank you. The Tories are going to get in again then. Yeah. Well, this, this is the thing is that I just can't agree with that because it, it, it is fundamentally to me is still only a choice between a Labour Party led by Starmer and a Conservative Party led by Johnson or Sunak or whoever they, they bring in next. Mm. Liz Truss, doesn't really matter. They're all as bad as each other. And I would very much rather be in a position where Starmer's coming in and he's bringing in things like more benefit support, uh, abolishing uh, sanctions for uh, disabled people on benefits, um, bringing in uh, more spending on education, on oh, National please. Health Service. I think all those things coming in is much better than the opposite happening with Johnson, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to win in 2024, because it is a very significant chance to hold back the tide of the the Tory push forward. Because, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that they want to do, and if they get another four years, they will. And that's not a good thing, and I don't see why anybody on the left would enable that. I just... I don't understand. I'm just like, you do realise how bad the Tories are. Literally anything is better. And I know that it's kind of a case of hold like hold your nose and close your eyes, whatever. But come on, literally anything is better. And if you're the kind of person who's there going, I'm not going to vote for Starmer. Um, personally, I find it hard to believe that you understand or experience some of the negatives the Tories invoke, like, Im like impress upon the UK. Like you must be really privileged, Imhop for you to not understand just how bad the Tories are. And if you aren't privileged, that's you must have reasons, but I don't agree with them. You're wrong. But your vote affects more than just yourself. It affects thousands of other people. See, this is one... You're not voting for yourself. You are voting for everybody like you. And it's one problem that I think uh, is not a... Pro it's, it's not a perspective that the left created, but it's sort of trickled down to people on the left as well is this perception that's grown in this country over many decades of the idea that voting is an individual action. It's not an individual action. That, it's, that something it's something you do as a group. Yeah, it's something that people view it as something to express your own particular individual preference. No. Something that represents who you are as a person or as your values. You know, I've had this argument many times with people who voted Liberal Democrat over Brexit or Green and... They talk to me as if their vote is purely individual and has no impact on what other people experience. But it, it, it does. And I think viewing democracy and liberal democracy as an individualistic choice rather than a collective decision, as you say, is, is just is, is a very, very unsocialist thing to do. Yeah. Um, every single election involves every single choice you make in a democratic environment involves choices between limited options. And that applies under proportional representation as well, because you don't have one billion parties on the ballot. You usually only have about four or five major parties. And in Germany, which had PR for decades up until um, it had multiple parties, it only had about three major parties. Still had PR. So there were two final points I wanted to mention. Uh, we now know for sure that the local and devolved elections will take place in May. There was some ambiguity over whether they might be delayed till later this year, but apparently the government says, no, it's fine, they're going to go ahead. Um, there's going to be elections, uh, I believe, everywhere 
So everyone's going to have the chance to vote in some election or another, whether it's a parliamentary election in Scotland, Wales, mayoral elections, police and crime commissioner, council elections. Everyone's going to have the chance to cast a ballot. And, um, you know, I, I've been talking to people about what a good result would look like for Starmer. And it does vary based on the position. But I think if we're looking at, you know, remaining the government in Wales, third place or second in Scotland, ideally second, keeping uh, the mayors we have and adding two or three more and getting 100, 200 seats, that would be quite a good result. But anything less than that, even if we make a few gains, that would be very, very disappointing. And um, I think that Starmer would seriously need to look at changing his strategy. Because this is one point I forgot to add. I don't want people to look at stats that I post and listen to things that, I, that we say here and think that uh, Labour's done for, uh, we're never going to win, uh, etc. all this stuff. We're still quite close to the Tories. Starmer's approval rating is still quite good. And it is a long time since the next, till the next election. The point of these sorts of discussions is more that we're not doing as well as we could do. And we're not doing as well as we should in order to have a stronger shot at winning. But we can do better and we should do better. And one of the ways that we can do that is by changing the strategy we're pursuing. Actively trying to appeal for the support of young people and actively trying to appeal to the support of people on the left. And that is something that Starmer can do. Mm. And I think he needs to do. You want to know how to appeal to young people? Give us rent protections, sort out tuition fees, and for the love of God, improve the situation for first-time buyers? Because at the moment, we're all trapped in a poverty trap. You need to, like, let us out <laughs> let us out please I mean, like this... you will absolutely get young people on board if you offer them the hand they've been begging for for 20 years yeah if you offer people something to vote for they will vote for it and i don't know at what point in this country the idea that we shouldn't offer the voters what they want came into common usage mm. like this seems to be just common sense amongst like uh, the public, and this is the case for the Democratic Party as well, common sense in the Labour Party, that for some reason, if the public wants something and we support it too, mm. we shouldn't offer it to them. Yeah. Because, oh, the media might say it's unrealistic or the Tories might say we're spending too much money or, you know, Tony Blair might come back, come through a time portal from 1997 and say that, oh, you shouldn't have promised to nationalise the railways even though he also promised to nationalise railways. And it's just infuriating you can't be neutral and everything because then no one knows who you are or what you stand for you need to have some opinions and for the love of god if someone if a party if if labor offered me tomorrow a policy which said they would stop buy to let investors from buying first time buyer houses i would fucking i would lose my absolute mind from joy because they shouldn't be allowed to do that yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to what side does Labour want to be on? What sorts of people does it want to represent? Yeah. And at the moment, it doesn't seem to know, but a lot of people who support Starmer seem to want it to represent... And I'm not saying this is Starmer's view because I can't read the man's mind, but I do know that lots of his supporters seem to want us to represent, you know, people in the Red Wall, people who, you know, uh, hated Corbyn and people who, you know, haven't uh, actually worked for like 30 years because they've all been retired for a long time. And all of their policies and priorities are centred around that at the expense often of people who are actually in the job market right now, struggling to find work, can't find houses, can't find jobs. And yet Labour seems to be focused determinedly on winning the support and representing the interests of people who haven't had to struggle for very much at all for several decades.
Yeah. And I just think that is completely unrepresentative of how most people in this country actually live. Well, here's the thing as well. The the demographics of the voters of the two parties, Labour's voting demographic is so young. Like, we are the future. We, we are your future voters. Maybe offer us something to keep us on side. Well, it's not even just a case of 18 to 24s or 18 to 30s. It's not just that Labour has more support amongst 18 to 24s now than it did in 1997 or 2001 or even 2005 when it last won, but also amongst people who are 25 to 34, and also very, very close to the same level of support amongst people who are 35 to 44. So we're talking like a significant proportion of the population, the working age population, below the age of 44, not the age of 24, the age of 44, who are as supportive of Labour now as their same demographics were in 2001 and 97 and 2005 when we won landslide majorities and yet like these people and their interests go completely undiscussed in the Labour Party's rhetoric at the moment and Labour Party's policy offerings those people are not going to stay supportive of the Labour Party if we offer them fuck all Mm. if we offer them fuck all and then they get older and the Tories offer them tax breaks on the house they finally bought yes like why do you think people people see it's not generally true now that we know we now know that it's not generally true that people guarantee flip blue as they get older but we do know that there are people who siphon off that way and this is how you create a pipeline where labor gives them nothing and then the tories go well done on getting your house and becoming one of us here's a tax break i mean in the 1980s you had significant portions of 18 to 24 year olds who supported margaret thatcher like she won 18 to 24s in one of the elections in 1980s which is phenomenally un unimaginable today with the tories winning 19 percent to Labour's 62 amongst 18 to 24s. And of course, people said at the time as well, oh, you know, it's young people. They're, they're always, you know, they're idealistic. They don't vote. You don't have to offer them anything. Well, you know who did offer them something? The Conservative Party. And they kept offering them things as they got older and they got wealthier. And then those people who voted Tory in the 1980s as young people are voting Tory now. And we can't get them back because yeah. we didn't offer them anything at the time, that was in their interest because we were chasing after older people back then as well. I was going to say as well, the current research about this kind of do the people actually get more conservative as they get older, it indicates that that's not the case and that the actual scenario is people form their concrete political ideologies in their 20s and then they don't tend to stray from that. Like The likelihood of them straying from that beyond the age of 30 is quite slim. People form their ideas, they get attached to them, they build an identity and a life around those ideas and beliefs and their friendship networks be made up by similar people. By the time they hit 30, they're pretty much guaranteed in what they believe. Like, So we need to be offering young left-wing voters something to keep them on side so they don't turn 30 go, thank God I got the keys to my house, bye. Young people have become increasingly left-wing and the level of support that Corbyn won amongst young people, which was 62% in both 2019 and 2017, it was unchanged, was nearly 20 points higher than what Ed Miliband got. It was 30 points higher than what Gordon Brown got. Um, and it was uh, 21 points higher than what Blair got in 2001. Mm. And that it, it's not normal for that to be the case. But it's also not normal for there to be such a gap between what young people want in politics and what old people want. I mean, in 2010... Labour got a higher share of the vote amongst over 65s than it did amongst young people. And in 2019, Labour's share of the vote amongst young people was 62%, and amongst older people, 
for 17% because that gap has just gotten bigger and bigger and it didn't start with Corbyn and it, it, it's not going to end with Corbyn because it's not a question of we're not worshipping the British flag enough. That's not why people vote Tory. It's not, no. I mean... It's, it's ultimately, and it's going to sound really funny coming from me, given the way I talk, it's about class and money and power and income and these are questions that are being completely ignored by the current leadership and if i sound frustrated it's because i am because we could do so much better than this i would say it's also about media uh, yeah and the fact that media doesn't just mean you get the tv that your country makes anymore everybody who's under the age of 30 almost entirely everyone under the age of 30 i would say in this country majority watches foreign tv I would not be. I would. I would say maybe twenty five and under. But like most of us are watching Netflix. The BBC is strug. iPlayer, BBC. They're struggling because of this. Most people no, yeah. aren't watching British telly. We're watching shows from abroad. We're getting our news from Twitter. We're not reading um, the Times or whatever. Like we're we're getting our news from each other and from our friends in other countries. We are the most international demographic in this country. And we care about what the rest of the world has to say, because typically the rest of the world is a lot more honest about the UK situation than our media is. And guess what? If you're under the age of 30, you're a digital native enough that you know that. And so you're able to form your own ideas. And guess what? Here's, the, here's my personal hypothesis on humanity. It's that if you let enough people from enough, enough diverse backgrounds talk to each other, they care about each other. And they ultimately will end up being left wing because it's impossible to hate people when you know they're human. Well, we've got lots of um, good uh, discussion today. I wanted to close with the poll of the month from YouGov. And it was asking um, British voters, how important is it to you, if at all, that the first woman has just become vice president? And women said 60% important, 30% not important. Men, 45% important, 46% not important. Because men suck. Oh, man. You know, you could have asked me, do you think men think it's important that Kamala Harris is the VP? And I'd have been there like, no. I bet they're there like, it's not important. So what? Because they don't, they've never been without it. Oh, my God. Oh, it's so annoying. Men hate when things aren't about them. They're like, it's not a big deal. Like, this is the exact same attitude of being like, well, if women were actually smart, they would already have been VP rather than going, I wonder why they've never been a VP who's female before. Oh, it's because of us and because of all the barriers in the way. Though I will say as a side note, it is really cool that the first v female VP is not white. I am pleased that that's happened in that order because so often white women get to do stuff first and then people like women of color get to do it decades later. And that freaking sucks. So I am glad it's happened in this order. So that's a very positive thing. Because one of the things that was quite interesting about Biden, he, he announced very early on that like I, he's like, I want my vice president to be a black woman because effectively he's saying, I want to use my privilege to pull people up with me, which is quite it's... a nice thing to do, actually, because he knows that lots of people are going to vote for him who wouldn't vote for a black woman. Yeah, I'm sure there are people who be say, don't give him too many brownie points for that. But like, what's the point of privilege if you're not yeah. using your privilege to hold the door open? That is... An example of what you should be doing with your privilege is opening doors for people who don't have the haven't been given the equipment to do it themselves. Although he could have just not run and just endorsed Kamala Harris. That's true, but this year they were looking for someone who they could yeah. be like, he's going to be a shoo-in because they were yeah. terrified of Trump. 
then I, I think that is the reason they were so terrified of Trump that they did something really boring because they were like, we know this works and we're shit scared that Trump's going to get in again. So we're going to do the boring thing because we're so freaking scared and we don't know what to do. They, they were scared out of thinking creatively, which I understand because the big Dorito man, he's not even he's not he's not got a good enough like shoulder width to be a Dorito man. Just the, the horrible cheese Cheeto, puff, Cheeto. the horrible cheese puff man. Yeah needs to go so i i do understand it but it is still rubbish i think it's, it's worth emphasizing that people made a deliberate choice they knew why they were selecting biden they knew who he was they knew what he entailed they knew he didn't really stand for that much and they they decided that he would be the most electable and he did win so i imagine many of them feel vindicated by that um but i think it's also worth emphasizing that People elected Starmer for the same reason. I think a lot of people made a, an active choice to say, I know Starmer's more centrist than me. I know he's more centrist than Corbyn. I just don't see how we're going to win if we don't do this. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that analysis. I recognise that many people aren't going to listen to me anyway, so it probably doesn't matter. But Maybe they have a point. Until we get some kind of election system which isn't decided by rich white men in, in the Midlands. Well, it's more a case of, I think... The first step towards the left regaining influence within the Labour Party is understanding why it lost that. Mm. And obviously, the elephant in the room is that we lost the election and people stopped trusting that the left could win. And that is the primary thing that most Labour Party members want is to win an election because we haven't done it since 2005. And a lot of people looked at the options and said, from my, from their perspective, Starmer was the best bet to win an election out of the people who came forward. I don't know if that's the case and we'll see if it is the case, but... Whatever it is, he won out of those people. And I think people made an active choice and would re-elect him in a mm. leadership contest again. And I don't see any point in talking about getting rid of him or challenging no. him. It only weakens our position. No, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll disagree with him when I think he's getting things wrong. And I'll point out when the strategy is failing because I yeah. don't think it is working. Like, we're trying to build a house here. Stop trying to dig out the foundation. Yeah. It's never going to get built if you just kind of kick the bricks at the bottom. And like, you know, it is and it's occasionally funny when people call him Keith. And like, that's a bit, that's just a funny way of teasing about him. Why? And it, people, it's, well, just Because it's a really silly way of teasing um, his supporters. <laughs> Oh, but it's not. The thing is, it's I get not it now. I was confused then. I, think I get it now. What happened is, I think somebody misspelled his name once, and people thought they did it on purpose. <laughs> and then they got oh, his supporters no. got really, really annoyed, and so people on the left kept doing it. It's like the twenty points ahead joke. Oh, you know what I said about Kia though. The most interesting thing about him is his name. Is his name? <laughs> yeah, Kia is a pretty interesting name. Keith. Yeah. I'm Keith sorry says. to any Keiths out there. That, that's but... why they keep calling him Keith because they think he deserves the name Keith because he's boring. Keith's not a boring name. It's just well, it's, 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 I mean, statistically, it's an unusual name. Well, I suppose we'll finish on that then. Um, that despite all of um, bo both of our sometimes issues with with Keith Starmer, we're still very much on the Keith for Prime Minister train. And I think that the only way in which we're going to oust the Tories and get some kind of progressive government in power that does good things for people is by supporting the Labour Party. We're in a horse race. We have a horse. His name is Keith. We cannot get off the horse and beat the other horses to the finish line. We have to finish the race on a horse. And his name is Keith. Oh, I have to stop myself from laughing. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my God.
You've been listening to Stats for Lefties, which is a podcast between two good buds, myself, L, And me, Paige! To talk about, you know, stats, uh, elections, general British politics from the perspective of young Labour-supporting lefties. Um, if you enjoyed uh, our content, be sure to follow us on Twitter at LeftyStats. And if you want to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash LeftyStats. I would also encourage you to check out Paige's podcast, which is a Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Why don't you tell us a second about that? I will. So I run a little old show called The Junket Podcast, which is a bi-weekly Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast where a bunch of queer people zoom around in space and have a jolly old time trying to save the universe or something. Uh, you can find us at thejunketpodcast.com or on Twitter at thejunketpod.